how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Steve Blackman was working as an attorney when he decided to use his experience and turn the environment into a spec script. When he sold the script, he quit his job that very day to pursue his dream of becoming a professional screenwriter. Over the past two decades, Blackman has written for shows like Wildcard, Bone, Las Vegas, Private Practice, Fargo, Legion, and Altered Carbon. Now he's also the creator behind Netflix's new series, Umbrella Academy. The latest show comes from a graphic novel by the same name, which reveals a family of former child heroes who have grown apart, but are forced back together when new dangers enter our world. In this interview, Blackman discusses his love for dysfunctional and broken characters, how to balance a heightened reality with grounded drama, his love for subverting expectations in genre, how to subliminally present characters, and why each script ends with a tone pass. You can also look for the print version of this interview on Creative Screenwriting's website. Well, I've always had a love for television. I actually had an old life as an attorney, and I was pretty miserable at it. Uh, I wasn't miserable doing it. I was miserable, you know, practicing law. And uh, I sort of dreamed of getting out, and I saw an opportunity uh to write a show about young lawyers, sort of write, you know, where I was in my life and what I knew. And I wrote that show and sold it at the BAM television conference over 20 years ago. So that was my, uh, my break, as they say. What were maybe some of those details you put in that first story? Like, what did you kind of realize writing that? What was it beyond just what you knew as far as character and those type of things? Well, you know, there's the old adage, right? What you know. And, you know, I thought that was just the thing people said, but the truth is, you know, some of the most honest writing comes from, you know, looking within and, and and writing from your own experiences. I mean, it doesn't mean writers can't, you know, write about other things. But for me, it was, there's a certain angst about the way I wrote that. And what made the package a better sell is when I, when I pitched it, 
they knew I was, you know, giving a story from the heart. It was sort of my story. And it it just made that all more real and sort of um, put a little more credence behind the storytelling. How quick, when did you actually like transition to full time? When did you know that you were in this career full time professionally? The second they bought it, the show, I quit that day from my law practice, which was a bit of a shock to the partners. But I, I literally packed on my office and walked out the door. I'm sure it's not just like one paycheck. Like, what was it about that experience that if you were giving advice to someone about possibly cutting the safety net, what might you say? Well, I think, you know, there's nothing better than television. I think it's, and there's no better time to be a TV writer, to be honest. There, there's more content being made now than ever. But at the time, it wasn't the case. But, you know, I was truly passionate about storytelling. And, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing, a truly wonderful thing to write something on a piece of paper and see it come to life through, you know, amazing actors, crew, production. Um, you know, I've done this for 20 years now, but I still get excited every time I walk onto set. I get excited every time I see the first dailies. Uh, it, there's nothing better in the world in my mind. If you're looking at like your most recent credits, uh, Fargo, Legion, Altered Carbon, Umbrella Academy, is there something that you would say kind of defines your brand as a writer? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think I love character shows. Uh, not to say I haven't written procedurals, I have. Uh, they're very demanding in their own way. But what I really love, um, you know, and this is sort of what I, I think I've done with Umbrella Academy and Fargo is, you know, telling very relatable stories about people. Sometimes they're often, you know, my, my favorite characters are the ones that are, are the most broken, the ones with full of foibles. Uh, and to me, the, the, the characters that um, struggle are the most interesting to write. So I think my brand is sort of writing this dysfunctional character that I seem to be drawn to, uh, you know, my writing. What are some of the challenges? So some of the, these are like either adaptations or Fargo was kind of an extension to this universe. What are some of the challenges of like hitting those points that audiences expect to see versus bringing something new in as well? You know, the Umbrella Academy is a challenging show because we're living in the heightened reality. At the same time, we're, t- we're trying to tell, tell dramatic stories. And for example, this season two, you know, we're dealing with real issues of racism, homophobia. And to find sort of the tonal balance between sort of the heightened reality, the superheroes, at the same time being, you know, being true to these issues and telling credible storytelling, um, you know, is a challenge. But I think that's that's when you, you know, that's really the sort of sign when you do something great is, you know, when you can find that balance. And many, many shows do it. I mean, The Watchmen's the type of show that I think is a great example where they balance, you know, relevant social issues with sort of the heightened reality. And, and when you find that balance, it's nothing better. Now, how are you, for those who are not super familiar with the comic, I know season one and season two are quite different. Where in line is it with uh, the graphic novels? And then what, what, how much, what percent maybe is completely original? It depends. I mean, you know, this was, this season was a very, we, we sort of went on our own path. I see the graphic novel as a wonderful springboard. It's incredible source material. I'm, I'm quite close with Gerard Way and great Gabriel by the creators. But, you know, from the beginning, we realized that the two things couldn't be a carbon copy just because, A, the type of sort of story in the graphic novel is nonlinear. Some of it is, is so big, it would, you know, I would need a, 
I need a big feature budget to do it. So I had sort of the dramatic license from the guys to sort of take what I needed and to be able to draw my own sort of new stories. I think season one, we were able to sort of have a pretty good beginning, middle, and end that sort of, you know, grounded the characters, but sort of still stay within the, the character arcs of the first volume of comics. Season two, we went, we definitely went in a different sort of direction. Uh, I needed to ground the story in a 10-day arc, which is sort of the conceit of our show. It takes place over 10 days. And in one of the comics of volume two, they, they dealt around the Kennedy assassination. And I decided to sort of put the whole season just in that piece and sort of tell our version of the story. There's much conversation, like like season one is, well, the show really is, is about superheroes, but you also combine the issues of family and relationships, that kind of thing. Are, are most shows today talking about crossing genres, or are you, are you not even thinking about that? It's mostly just tone and character. Good question. I mean, I, I think people do talk about that. I don't. I don't talk about it, you know, with the extra in the writer's room. You know, I, I want to tell good storytelling. And I think the word I use the most, uh, or the words, is um, subverting expectation. That for me, it's a very busy genre, the superhero genre. There's people who do, you know, Marvel, DC, they do great jobs of it. This, I wanted this to feel like something different. And and first of all, I, I, I looked at the show as a dysfunctional family show. The fact that they're superheroes is, is important, but it was incidental in telling these relatable human stories about a, a broken family and abusive father. So that was how we came into it. Um, but, you know, I, I know the genre gets tossed around a lot, the word and how you fit in. I, I try not to put that blinder on my eyes and just, you know, tell the sort of best stories we can with these characters. Has that sort of changed the way you pitch stories as well, or is that still kind of part of the formula? Like, like when you brought this into Netflix, what were some of the aspects you were discussing? Well, I, I came in and I said to them, I, I, I couldn't do another superhero show as it had been done before because I didn't think that space needed another one. And I thought what the graphic novel did really well is it, it set up this family. So my biggest pitch to them, you know, I had just come off actually a very big sci-fi drama called Alter Carbon, which you mentioned, which was very character, but very big and, you know, very much in sort of the sci-fi tropes. But I said in this one, I was going to very lean into sort of the unexpected and, and try to ground everything. Even though it was a very heightened graphic novel, I wanted the characters to feel grounded. And I think in season two, we went even more to sort of the bizarre and weird in terms of our, how, how the characters were, were going to go. And I think the fans will really appreciate that, both the fans who sort of have loved the graphic novel for 10 years and sort of the new fans who just discovered it last year with the season one of the show. This one might sound kind of out of left field, but I was listening to an interview with Quentin Tarantino. He was talking about Kill Bill and how all the fights that she goes through in the two movies are all kind of like showing different genres in each fight. These characters are so different in Umbrella. Do you kind of see that? Like, do the scenes feel different based on the characters in those scenes? Well, I love that you even mentioned me with uh, Quentin Tarantino. It's such a wonderful thing to say. I think we, we want everyone to feel every sort of fight sequence uh, we want each character to feel sort of you're in their unique world. It's the same thing with music. You know, we tailor the music for the show to sort of be very distinct to the person that's in it. So you, you always feel like you're in the world of that character, um, especially when they're doing things by themselves. But, you know, it's, uh, we, we want again each year to sort of elevate the way we do the fighting and to sort of, you know, fighting 
he's a character. A good fight scene tells its own story. And that's what we're trying to do and not just, you know, it's not just about throwing punches. It's telling a story within the fight. It's a tricky thing. Are there any, um, so you, I mean, you've mostly worked on shows, but you're really running things here. What are, are you worried about being precious with material? Like, um, or do you feel like they're just like an infinite world? I mean, if this show went on for 10 years, do you feel like there's enough material there? Yes. I mean, I'm not sure I would advocate doing 10 years of the show um, or 10 seasons maybe of the show. I definitely would want to do more seasons. You know, I have a good plan for season three, but you know, the truth is Gerard is coming up with new volumes. He's working on volume four now, which is out in the, you know, I, that's not a secret. He's, he's out in the right now. I think, you know, as long as we can make it feel, you know, unique and original, I think there's a way to continue to do the show. I, I don't want to get ahead necessarily of where Gerard's going, you know, with the general structure of the show. I would hate to sort of take a game of Thrones path and go somewhere different completely. So, you know, the, the good news is it takes us at least the, uh, you know, you know, 14 months before each season can come out. It's such a long process of prep, production, and post. I think that gives Gerard enough time to get a volume out of here, I hope, you know, and then we can all be at the same pace. What are maybe some lessons you learned on Fargo, Legion? Like, like what, what are some maybe some things you learned and you brought with you in the writer's room, or how do you run your writer's room? Um, I'm very collaborative. I've been in writer rooms which are much less collaborative. And what I find is, you know, every writer brings something to that room. It, it, there's different styles. There's some writers who throw, you know, 100 ideas against the wall and one thing sticks. There's the other writer who he or she sits very quietly um, and then has one point per day, but it's something really brilliant. But, you know, I really like to sort of, you know, have them contribute, not just in terms of their voice as writers, but also to really understand the production, what's going into show running, how decisions are made. Because I think what happens is writers are sort of in a vacuum and a showrunner walks in and says, we're not going to do this anymore, we're going to do this. And they would explain that, you know, as a showrunner, you're answering to studio network, you're answering to actors, to directors, and a lot of decision-making is made, nothing to do with something to do with stories. It's for all these other reasons. And I don't think that gets shared enough with the writers, you know, who really, the, the, the system should mentor young writers up the chain so they understand why production works the way it does. And it used to be that way where writers would prep their episodes after writing them and they do post. That has gone away for most shows because of cost saving. And I think that's a disservice to writers. And I think we should struggle and try to come back to that system where they are much more involved in you know, everything involved in the making of a show, not just the writer's room. I know you've also done your, your producer, writer, showrunner on, on different shows. Do you have any advice for, for maybe who writers who want to kind of take on more responsibility? I mean, obviously I'm sure it helps you craft the story in a, in a way that's more to your vision. What other advice might you have for just taking on the extra role as a producer and maybe trying some different things like that? I think writers shouldn't be afraid to talk to the showrunner to say, I want to be more involved, or, or even I want to understand why something works the way they do. You know, I'm encouraging my writers as much as possible to come to me and say, explain to me a budget. How does a show budget work? Uh, and that's an amazing thing that most writers, you know, especially now, given the amount of content, writers are moving up the ladder much faster. You know, when I started you. You stayed at a certain level for three years, then went up another level and up another level. It took years to get to showrunner. Now I've, I've interviewed young writers for Fargo and 
a legion who within you know three or four years are already show running, which is very quick. But the problem is they, they don't understand, like I said, how the shows work. But even understanding a simple budget would would open their minds to not only how shows should be written, because, you know, everything is, is limited by how much money you can spend, how much time you have with a camera and a crew. So I encourage writers to try to ask those questions and to, you know, when a showrunner has time to say, could you walk me through these, these steps, explain to me the budget, explain to me how the post process works. You know, the other thing I think is is just invaluable knowledge is understanding how to talk to the studio network, how to re- how to respond to notes, and understand how they who they answer to, and and understanding that will help you understand why they give certain notes. There's always a note behind the note, so you know those are sort of key things that just are not taught anymore. And I think uh, all writers need to learn those skills if they're interested in producing showrunning. Are, do you have any issues with maybe separating the parts, the parts of your job that are reactive versus proactive? Like, are there parts? Does the producer mind ever take over while you're writing, or does it kind of just help you by knowing exactly what you can do and can't do on the page? Well, it's a great question because the truth is, I, you know, it, it, it sounds hypocritical, but it's not. I tell the writers to, on the very first draft, not to be limited by anything production-wise. In other words, to really unload their creative story on the page. You know, of course, I say, you know, if our scripts are 52 pages long, I'm not interested in reading a 72-page script. But I tell them to, you know, free their minds of the limits of production on the very first draft. And once they have that first draft, then I work with them on the second draft to sort of now to slowly trim the fat a little bit to get into something that's shootable. There's no point for writers to hand in unshootable scripts. It's a nightmare for showrunner. It's a nightmare for the producers. So... But, but again, you know, I don't want the, the younger writers saying, well, I don't know if we can do this, so I just will write this. I'd rather them write it, take, take a swing, and maybe a miss, but then I can explain to them why we can't shoot in that location or why this is impossible to do. Like, just for example, shooting on water is always very tricky. Writers love to write scenes on water, and I always say to them, you know, it's far, it takes far longer than shooting on land, so be very careful. You may want to do the scene, but here's sort of what you lose if you do it, you'll have to limit something else in the production. With like uh, CGI and some of the effects you have, I mean, obviously they cost money, but are there other like maybe unknown uh, expenses, you know, besides like having a, a massive background of people or something like that? What, what are some other misconception writers have about budget, budget issues? Well, I think uh, I'll speak to an ensemble because, you know, we are an ensemble. With ensemble, especially with our show, you know, we have seven or eight lead characters. Um, what people don't understand is, of course, the VFX is very expensive, but to cover seven or eight people in the scene is just incredibly time-consuming. Most shows, you know, shoot two cameras per day. Uh, shows with more money can get away with three, but to to shoot five pages of eight characters in a scene can take an entire day to do a scene um, or three-quarters of a day. So I think writers have to understand... You know, if you haven't spent on time on set, I encourage you to spend time on set, even on your own free time. Ask the showrunner for permission to sit on set, because I think there's an illusion with young writers not understanding just how time-consuming it is to actually physically shoot these shows and to do them well. And once they get on the set and they see the challenge, then they sort of can slightly self-edit when they think about page count and how complicated these scenes are to do. Uh, again, it's a balance of not limiting creative freedom on the page with 
production limitations, but that is really the challenge, and that's what showrunners sort of deal with every day. Do you see these two seasons kind of as, as their own miniseries? And then how do you also think about audiences who binge versus those who might might watch one episode a day or or spread it out? How do you kind of how does that change your writing process? I, I see the show as a ten hour movie. <clears throat> you know, I think more so now than ever because when I think I started with Netflix four years ago, uh, even longer, maybe four and a half years ago. And it's a completely different landscape. You know, Netflix has gone from a company with, you know, 10 or 12 originals back then to, I know, hundreds of original shows. And because that's this new change, which is sort of this mass amount of content, people binge. And the bingeable model, in my mind, is, you know, if people are going to watch three and four in a sitting. You, you, you want, you know, I don't want to have a show where I have to say previously on my show. So the idea now is, you know, the shows are continuous. My episodes take place exactly where we left off in the previous episode, which is a binge-worthy sort of device. If you're going to sit there and watch it, I want to give you the best binging experience. So I think it's a different rule for network, but definitely on streaming, uh, we write the shows to a binge market. I, I, I know our show in season one was one of the most, most binge shows out there. So this season is, again, crafted for people to enjoy multiple episodes at once and feel like, you know, it's, it's sort of a mini movie that you're watching as opposed to sort of single standalone episodes. Do you see like, like, let's say for season two, do you see each individual character's story as somewhat like of a novel? Like what is it, if it were gridded out on paper is the Sid field and those kind of things, is that kind of out the window or is some of that still there across 10 hours? Well, you know, I think we break it up in two ways. We, you know, what's tricky about our ensemble is every character has his own, her or his own through line. Some emotional story we'll want to tell. So that has to sort of be broken out, you know, ahead of time with the big flagpoles in the season at different points along the year, uh, sort of, sorry, along the season. At the same time, you know, we have to sort of blend it with a, story, a plot story that, uh, you know, is sort of the driving uh, engine of the show. And then there's these multiple crosses with other characters. So all of that sort of has to be cultivated and it has to be, you know, thought out because sort of how those things intermesh is, is quite tricky. And the season would feel lopsided if, you know, one character had so much more than the other. So that's the sort of way we look at that. You know, the graphic novel, the, the comic is it's very much all over the place in a great way. It's what makes it so fun. But it would be a nightmare to translate that that way. So I, I'm forced, because of the sort of medium I'm in, to tell sort of as much linear storytelling as I can for it to make sense for the viewers. With something like this, do you find yourself with excess material or stretching out some points? I mean, I would assume, like, based on what you just said, every scene, like, like three or four things has to ha- almost have to happen in every scene to some degree. It's a nightmare to reduce it. It's the hardest thing about the show. And I can tell you, honestly, in a new COVID landscape, you know, if we're lucky enough to have a season three and, you know, we're hopefully, you know, I'm planning for it and I hope I get it. But you're know, looking ahead into COVID, you know, script pace count will have to go down because it's just going to take longer to test people on set to keep crew, crew and cast safe and pods. Um, so, you know, I've already, you know, planned to lower the page count over already a busy ensemble. But it's the trickiest part because finding that balance with all the stories and, 
you know, every writer inevitably hands in a longer episode than I want them to do. And then the very hard part of the show for myself and the writers is we have to sort of self-edit. We have to cut and still keep that balance. And that, you know, sometimes we have, it doesn't sound like much talking to you, but when I say, you know, we have to cut four or five pages out of the script, that's so hard to do when everything's interwoven. Well, that's, yeah, it sounds like that's a full episode almost across the season, right? Absolutely. You know, that equates to, you know, looking ahead, you know, the plan, you know, every show wants to make sure you comment at the right page count. But over the years, I've noticed, like, I I remember when in network we wrote 58 to 60 page scripts. That was the norm. Then it's 55. Now I think if you look at the the running time of a lot of shows, especially on Netflix, 40 minutes to 43 minutes is sort of the new norm. Um, which is a shorter time count. Shows really are not pushing beyond that because I think that's sort of the sort of the top level of what people want to consume in a sitting. I mean, people binge, of course, but that seems to be the a mouthful for most people, and that's where you know things are sort of shifting to. Gone are the sixty-minute episodes of anything. So I know one of the bigger misconceptions for writing for television is that some people think it's completely original. If you're if you're a staff writer. When in reality, you're you're probably kind of matching the showrunner's voice to some degree. You've got some of your own aspects there. But if you hired someone and and they ask you, how can I write more like you or more like the voice of the show, would you hand them a bunch of scripts? Or where would you kind of start with that kind of advice to match the voice and tone you want to create for this series? It's a great question. And I, I think the hardest thing for young writers is, even though you may have your own voice, not you, we want the writers to bring their take on a show. I'm sorry, their interesting voice to the page. But at the end of the day, your job as a young writer is to emulate the sort of tone of the show. And sometimes you'll get a script that it, it's a, a great read, but it doesn't read like the show. It doesn't have the tone of the show. So inevitably, their goal is to sort of match the tone of the way I write the show. And, you know, I do the last pass of everything, which I call the tone pass, just to make it feel like one show. But, you know, it's very tough. I've been a young writer in a room, and I've been there where I hand him what I think is an amazing script, and and it is a good script, but, you know, the tone is wrong, and it comes back from the showrunner, it's it's dramatically changed. It's easy to take that personally, but at the end of the day, it's not personal. The show has to feel cohesive. The, the tone has to be the same. The, the character voices have to match. And a great script from a young writer to me does all that. All those things fit. You know, I, I hire young writers that read their original stuff. I know they can do original advice. Their job is to come up with great ideas in the room, but also to, when they write their script, to make it feel like it is that show and not sort of their original piece. What is common today? So I know years ago, like it was, it was normal to write. You'd write a spec script. There's only a handful of TV shows on TV, though, that you'd write a Seinfeld or whatever it was. Like, are, are, as a showrunner, are you kind of expected to see everything, or are, you, or are you mostly reading original content to kind of gauge someone's creativity or writing aspect? Uh, it's, it's such a good question because it's so timely. It used to be that everyone wrote a West Wing, everyone wrote an ER, everyone wrote something within the air. Now, showrunners, and I, I can't speak for every showrunner, but my friends who are showrunners myself, I only want to read original content. I want to read what their voice is. I want to read who they are as a writer. And just so you know, I will read more than just a script. I will read a short story, a novel, a play. I will read any sort of material that writer will bring me that shows his or her voice. And if it's an interesting, unique voice, I'll hire them. 
and I, you know, I'll do my best to sort of mentor them in the industry. But, you know, I'm not interested in reading your spec of another show. I want to see that original voice, no matter what the which media comes out of. Because, you know, I, I read a lot of plays now. I read a lot of short stories now, and I'm, I'm happy to read them if it lets me know who that writer is. Is uh, Has anything changed about the first five pages? I mean, I know, like... Like I was talking to one writer, and he was saying he was getting his his like son or daughter to watch The Godfather, and just how slow it was, you know, some of those scenes. But today, it's like the first five minutes are probably more impactful than the first five minutes a decade ago. There's more things has to happen. Yeah. What are you looking for when you're reading some of these some of these specs? What makes you stop reading? What makes you keep reading? Well, sadly, I think given the amount of submissions I get, you know, when it's staffing time. I, I can't read 60 pages of everything. So I have to, someone has to capture my, my eyes in the first 10 or 12 pages. It doesn't mean it has to be explosions or an action sequence, but I, I need to be drawn in. It's like any good book, any good play. I mean, it draws you in right from the start. That is the goal. Because truthfully, I, I can't, you know, with 200 submissions, I can't, I'm not going to read, you know, that how many thousands of pages that is. If you can't capture me in the first 12 or 15 pages, I, I tend to stop. If you do capture me, I read the whole script, the whole short story, the whole play. But a lot of the time, you know, if, if I'm, you know, falling asleep in those first 15 pages, it's not a good sign for that person sort of, you know, making me think they're my kind of writer. So, it, you know, it is the time of COVID. Obviously, a lot of people are stressed out for different reasons. They're writing too much or not enough or doesn't know what to write. How are you kind of balancing some of this work? How do you balance? You seem very prolific, but how do you balance being prolific and then taking rest in between jobs and that kind of thing as well? It's really tricky, and I my heart goes out to you know all the writers who are struggling. You know, I'm fortunate enough to to be with Netflix right now and and still be paid, and you know I really do appreciate that. I know there's a lot of writers that are out of work. I think the key is. Uh, you know, it is a, a great time to be a writer, and that means writing your original show because it's it, people, you know, we with the writers finding their agents for a period of time, a lot of agencies have come back, but it's changed the way that studios and networks approach reading content. It's easier now than ever to just go directly to that network or studio and say, I'd like you to see something, I'd like you to pitch, I'd like to pitch you something. So now's the time to sort of be really aggressive with your your piece of material and your voice and try to get it heard. But it is a struggle. I mean, the only thing I can say is, you know, even if you can find 10 minutes, 30 minutes to write a day, it's worth it. Even those days you're exhausted, but to keep writing is, is sort of the best advice that I was given. And I, you know, I try to write a little bit every day and some days you'll get more and some days you'll get less, but it's worth just continuing to push, you know, through the tough times. And that is our show. Thanks again for tuning in. If it's your first time, make sure to hit that subscribe button on SoundCloud or iTunes. Also check out the new video essay series on YouTube called Creative Principles. And give us a review. That's one of the best ways to help share these interviews. Thanks again.